Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curd, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curd. Well, keeping me company until seven o'clock tonight, my panel. It's a man's night tonight. Uh, are we allowed to say man, men? Or is it just women? We're not allowed to say, I don't know. Anyway, I digress. Former Brexit Party MEP Ben Habib joins me, as does Professor of Political Economy and International Relations Lee Jones and teacher and author Kevin Rooney. And you know the drill on Jubes and Co by now. It's not just about us here. It's about you at home as well and your thoughts. Get in touch with me. Tell me, what is on your mind tonight? You can email gbviews at gbnews.uk. You can tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at gbnews. Don't forget, of course, if you haven't already, you can subscribe to us on YouTube. You can watch all the best bits. And as I always say, when I'm... When I, um, so best bits, what I really mean is Jubes and Co. You can watch us all back, you can watch us live. Uh, if you're watching there, good evening to you. Don't forget, of course, you can listen as well on the radio, DAB+. Good evening to you if you are listening, listening, not watching tonight. Our first top story, of course, is Ukraine. Boris Johnson has said that Western powers are looking to steadily ramp up the volume of military material they're supplying to Ukraine. He's speaking following a NATO summit in Brussels this afternoon. The Prime Minister said that no Western countries were currently looking to put boots on the ground or to impose a no-fly zone. Let's have a listen. We're bolstering our support for the NATO countries on the front line, sending a new deployment of UK troops to Bulgaria on top of doubling our troops both in Poland and in Estonia. This is just the beginning we must support a free and democratic Ukraine in the long term. This is a fellow European democracy fighting a war of national defence. NATO and G7 leaders were also united today in our determination to continue turning the screws on the Kremlin's war machine, including by weaning ourselves off Russian oil and gas and reshaping global energy security. Our political, political editor, Darren McCaffrey, is in Brussels and joins us live from there now. Darren, good evening to you. We've just been hearing a little bit from our Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, there, but it's been a very busy day uh, in Brussels. Bring us up to speed with the latest. Yeah, it really has been a busy day. Three extraordinary meetings here in Brussels. Uh, first of all, we had that NATO meeting uh, this morning. We then heard at lunchtime that the G7 had uh, convened. Boris Johnson, of course, at both of those meetings. And tonight here in Brussels, while Boris Johnson heads back uh, to London, EU leaders, President Biden and President Zelensky remotely, are going to meet and talk about potentially further sanctions on Russia. Uh, all in all, though, the Prime Minister wanted to emphasise, I think, a few things during that press conference. First of all, that Britain was doing more. First of all, in terms of sanctions, today has announced that 65 different individuals would be sanctions uh, with close links to the Putin regime. In addition to that, the Wagner Group, uh, that kind of parliamentary uh, mercenary group, Putin's private army it's often called, will be sanctioned as well. And then in addition to that, there is going to be more military equipment supplied to Ukraine from the UK, 6,000 extra missiles, Michelle, and then additionally 25 million quid as well transferred over to the Ukrainian army to help pay wages and rations. 
But interestingly, even though the UK feels it's stepping up uh, to the mark, there is a sense uh, that both Washington, London and indeed Warsaw and the Baltic states uh, want countries like Germany and France to go further uh, too, particularly and gas, and that's one of the key issues that's been discussed uh, tonight. Germany concerned about sanctioning oil and gas, not least of all because it is heavy reliance on Russian gas. They are concerned that if they were to turn off the taps, that would mean industry shutting overnight, people losing their jobs, their economies essentially going into uh, recession. So difficult politics at play. Uh, also, just a note on the questioning that we heard of both Boris Johnson and President Biden, who's also been speaking in the last hour here in Brussels on this issue of a chemical or biological attack. Both suggesting, both leaders, both Boris Johnson and President Biden, suggesting there would be consequences for Russia if that were to happen. They have flagged this, haven't they, over the last couple of weeks, that they suspect because Russia's back somewhat against the wall, that the campaign is not going as well as they had hoped, uh, that Russia might well resort to chemical or biological attacks. Uh, as I say, both leaders determined that if Putin was to go down that path, there would be consequences. Didn't quite spell out what those consequences uh, were, uh, but it's clear that I think both leaders, the EU included, uh, would draw that as a red line, uh, that they are insisting and hoping President Putin w would never uh, cross. But as I say, the debate, particularly about sanctions, will continue into tonight. We'll have to see what is thrashed out at that EU meeting uh, tonight here in Brussels and what the detail is that emerges over the coming hours. Dan McCaffrey, our political editor, live from Brussels. Thanks for your time. Uh, I'll start with you, Dr. Lee Jones. Uh, we're a month into this. Um, as I was explaining at the very start of this, thousands and thousands of people have died. Um, millions have been displaced. Billions spent in weapons, aid. Are we any closer to the end of this? Uh, not at the moment. I mean, the Russians and the Ukrainians have been involved in negotiations from almost the very start of this war. Um, and those negotiations have made some progress, but there's a number of stumbling points. So the there are questions over the status of Crimea, which the Russians seized in 2014, and the status of Donetsk and Luhansk, the breakaway, so-called breakaway people's republics that the Russians have recognized. That's one stumbling block. Mm -hmm. Another would be the international status of Ukraine. Ukraine on paper seems to have accepted that it needs to be, needs to be neutral to abandon its quest to join NATO, which, as I've tried to explain many times on your programme, is a key concern of Putin's and a reason why he has invaded. However, the Ukrainians are still looking for some kind of international security guarantee so that, for example, if they were attacked by Russia, the United States would ride to its rescue. That's something that I'm not sure the United States will actually agree to, and I'm not sure Putin would agree to that either. And thirdly, there may be another issue uh, to do with international sanctions that that Putin, in exchange for ending the war, presumably will, will want some relief from international sanctions. The difficulty with both of those two uh, last stumbling blocks, the security guarantees and the sanctions, is that there are some in the West that would like this conflict to go on, potentially indefinitely. This has been made very clear in the words of some officials, particularly in Washington, that they would like to use the war to bleed Russia, um, obviously exacerbating the suffering of the Ukrainian people. So, it is a very difficult, it's difficult at the moment to see a route to a negotiated solution, but that seems to be the only way to bring the war to an end. The alternative is a long grinding war, possibly involving counterinsurgency and so on, which could go on for many years. And Ben, I mean, we're just, Darren was bringing it up as well then, more sanctions, I think it's about 65 uh, additional people being sanctioned today. Um, 
Is it really going to make a difference? Because it doesn't seem to be, I've got to say. Well, I mean, we've got, we've, we've got to debug this sanctioning of, in, of individuals. That simply does not work. The single most important sanctions that we should be imposing on Russia, uh, one on its central bank, which we have done, we've frozen central bank assets globally, uh, 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 you know, the Russian central bank, and that had a dramatic effect on the ruble. But I'm afraid, contrary to what Boris Johnson just said, the G7 is not united. Germany is an outlier, and Olaf Scholz yesterday declared that under no circumstances would they switch off, uh, the, you know, switch off Russian gas, coal, and oil. And at the moment, Russia is still getting a billion dollars a day going in as a result of its sales of oil. And the global trading order is also changing. Uh, we saw last week India did a mega deal with Russia on the supply of gas from Russia to India. So if we stop buying gas and oil in the West, there will be other buys of it. Obviously, China is out there. Sanctions are not working. The ruble has bounced back. Um, Goldman Sachs is uh, actually forecasting that Russia itself will come back to growth next year, even if the war grinds on. Russia hasn't defaulted on its international debt. It has very low uh, debt to GDP ratio. So actually, sanctions aren't working. And so when the prime minister says we're standing with the people of Ukraine, that's actually over-egging what we're doing. We are divided in the imposition of sanctions. We're not, uh, we're not uh, directly involved militarily, not that, I suggest, not that I would support that, but we're not standing shoulder to shoulder with them. The West is divided and we need a much more coherent approach. And Kevin, um, you know, yet again, it was reiterated in terms of no-fly zones, instead in terms of boots on the ground, that that wouldn't uh, be a thing that's been considered by all uh, NATO countries are united in that. Yeah. Do you agree with that? Well, look, I think different narratives is a good thing. Ben, I hear what you say about, you know, we need to be singing from the same hymn sheet, but I don't necessarily agree. And what, what, I, what I mean by that is, I think this is a time for open, critical debate. We ask serious questions. So let me take me personally, for example. I want to defend Western values, Western values of uh, self-determination and national sovereignty. I think they're brilliant things, Michelle. And I also think that this war in Ukraine, it's not just a regional war, it's a seminal war. I think it's going to shape the 21st century. So I, I hugely want to support Ukraine. But at the same time, when I see Biden and, and Boris Johnson coming out today delivering effectively what they consider to be the Ten Commandments, I think these are the same people that invaded half a dozen countries in the last 20 years who ignored national sovereignty, who ignored the self-determination of many peoples in other parts of the world. So I don't trust them. So I think that we need to have an honest, open debate. And even when you talk about the sanctions, <clears throat> again, Ben, I understand that at one level where you're coming from, but it's getting illogical and irrational. For example, why, why are we boycotting Russian ballets? Why are, we, why are we boycotting Russian musicians? Why are we asking one of the world's famous tennis players from Russia before he's allowed into Wimbledon to come out and openly condemn Putin? No one fine wealthy does that his family would be in danger in Russia. So all I'm asking for at the moment is let's have a bit more open debate about where we're going here. But are you suggesting we shouldn't be imposing sanctions, Kevin? I, I'm, I, don't, I'm, I would accept sanctions against Putin. I would accept them, but I wouldn't accept some of the so-called things that are coming under the umbrella of sanctions. And secondly, Ben, just to come really straight back to your answer, I have a problem with what's happening in Ukraine. I completely oppose Putin's undermining of sovereignty. But just to be clear, I don't necessarily stand full square with Boris Johnson or Biden. I don't trust them. I don't trust NATO. I don't think they're neutral arbiter. 
Yeah, well, I don't trust Boris Johnson or Biden either. But I think that, you know, the, the, the weapon of choice, if you like, that the West has chosen to respond to, uh, to, respond to Putin with is sanctions. That's what we threatened them with. That's what we've now imposed. The only point I'm making is that the imposition of these sanctions is not working because it is not unified and it is not targeting the major source of Russia's foreign capital, which is oil and gas. And there's duplicity in the Western position on it. Let me bring um, Lee in, please. On the oil and gas sanctions, I mean, it's very easy for the UK and the US to say we're going to sanction Rus Russian oil and gas because they only depend on Russian imports for about 5 to 7% of their imports. It's very different on the continent. The EU relies on Russia for about a quarter of its oil and more than a third of its gas. If you sanction those imports to the EU, you will immediately trigger a massive economic depression in Europe. And we already know with the price of gas where it is and the price of oil where it is, it's already hitting the poorest people hardest in this country. So it's not as simple as just saying, let's just sanction those, those exports. The difficulty is, is that, that the European and Russian economies are coupled. And that's just a fact. We that is a fact. And it's a very, very sad reflection on Europe. You know, for decades, they've been sidling up to the Russians. And now they're, having to, now they're having to face up to the problems that they themselves have created. But the point about sanctions, just to reiterate what I, what I just said to Kevin, is that was our choice weapon. No, that that, was... that's also wrong. May I say it's wrong? Yeah. Because okay. the amount of military aid that has been committed to Ukraine is enormous. There's $1 billion before the invasion from the United States. Yeah, I, another I grant billion, you that. Another I, billion absolutely. in lethal aid after the invasion, an additional billion, a billion dollars committed today in humanitarian aid, a billion dollars in military aid from the... a billion euros in military aid from the EU, £400 million pounds or, or, from the UK, or, and they've just today doubled the lethal yeah. aid. NATO powers are pouring weapons into Ukraine. NATO is not willing to fight the Russians in Ukraine, but they are willing to fight to the last Ukrainian. See, I heard yeah. it described today that Europe um, is in... So the Ukraine is in a hot war with Russia and that Europe is currently in a cold war with, with Russia. Do you agree with that description? Yeah, the best that we're going to get at the end of all this is a cold peace. A cold uh, peace. We are in a very dangerous situation here where, as I've said many times, where we are facing off with a block of nuclear-armed powers in the West and a nuclear-armed power in Russia and sabre-rattling happening around the deployment now of chemical weapons. This is an extremely dangerous moment in the history of Europe, and this war needs to be de-escalated. We shouldn't be talking about ramping up the conflict. We should be doing everything we can to try and find an off-ramp. Yeah, and um, you're talking about oil and gas. Putin came out today, didn't he, as well, and was talking about what he was calling unfriendly countries from now on. He's basically going to look to trade his oil and gas in rubles. What do you think to that? Because there's not really much been said about that. I wasn't sure how relevant is that going to be. Well, the glo I mean, Putin will be running to rebalance his economy away from dependence on us. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so that's why he's done deals with India. He's done deals with Pakistan. He's going to, he, he'll no doubt be doing further deals with China. He'll be weaning himself off SWIFT. He'll be weaning Russian banks out of the Western uh, banking system. He'll be setting up a closer ties directly with other nations. That's, that's what a sensible economic response would be to sanctions and everything else that we're doing. I mean, I completely agree with Lee, by the way, that we... we 
Perhaps the most single important thing that we've done for the protection of Ukraine, if you can regard it as the protection of Ukraine, is giving them these defensive weapons. We've refused to give them offensive weapons, but we have given them defensive weapons. And Do you think we should give them offensive weapons? Well, you know, we're straying into a direct conflict with a nuclear power, which I think was another one of the points of concern that Lee was raising. But, you know, we've got to put into perspective, we lost as a nation something like 490-odd soldiers in Afghanistan over a 20-year period. The Russians, if you believe the figures coming out of Ukraine, have lost something between 8,000 and 9,000 in a month. That is a massive toll on their military. And the Ukrainians are absolutely putting up the fight of their lives. They've got their backs up against the wall. They've got women and children to protect, their homes to protect, and they're fighting like tigers. And I think the missiles we're providing them is making a difference. Um, do you think that Ukraine can realistically win this war, Kevin? Uh, honest answer? Mm. I don't know. And it depends what you mean by how you define winning, Michelle. I mean, I think that they could basically create a situation where... Um, they, at the, at the very least, create a stalemate. A bit like, you know, if you forgive the detour to the north of Ireland where I come from, where people would have said uh, in relation to the Ireland and the British Army that led to the, the peace process and the Good Friday Agreement. But here's a, here's a moral conundrum, Michelle, for all the viewers and for, for everyone and for Ben. So, <laughs> no, but, but it's a serious yeah. thinking out loud. I'm not trying to score a political point because I struggle with this as well. I mean, I don't identify, as I've said, with NATO or Boris Johnson or anything like that. But you have a situation where Ben's talking about supplying them with the weapons, and he makes this distinction, which I don't think is acceptable to me, about offensive and defensive weapons. I mean, the weapons they're supplying are absolutely offensive, so I don't accept Ben's point on that. But what, what, what the Brits here, Boris Johnson and the Yanks and the NATO people are doing is they're effectively getting the Ukrainians to do the killing, and they're getting the Ukrainians to do the dying. Mm. And so Ukraine has effectively become a proxy war. That I'm not in favour of the West intervening for no-fly corridors or anything else, but you would think there is a, an argument to say if you had the... Uh, what's the phrase I'm looking for, Michelle? If you had the decency to pursue the logic of where you're going, you would go in and fight. Now, I don't want them to go in and fight, but what I'm trying to point out is there's an illogicality there and there's something distasteful, morally speaking, about expecting the Ukrainians to do the dying and the killing. Well, I agree with you. That's why I say we're not standing with the people of Ukraine, contrary to what Boris Johnson said. We're not standing yeah. with them. You know, you can only stand with someone if you're militarily engaged. So what would you do, Ben? Would you, would you, go, would you, would you take your British troops and your NATO troops into Ukraine? Well, I think the mistake we've made... And we'll get on to it in a moment, I think, when we talk about other issues. But the mistake we've made as a nation, and the West has made generally, is we've consumed and consumed and consumed the peace dividend. And we haven't really looked after our own military needs. Germany's armed forces are a joke. Um, our armed forces are a shadow of what they used to be and what they should be. The, the, the strength of NATO, it is sad to say, is entirely the United States of America. And, you know, we need to start pulling our weight. Yeah. Well, I, I do want to pick up on a point because it's just come in and I don't have much time before I go to a break, so it's very briefly. Uh, Stephen's written in, uh, basically suggesting that you're a Putin apologist, that there's Putin apology going on. And I find this really fascinating. So I did, and I do want to go to a break, but I think it's, this is a very important point to pick up on. Because at the moment, we seem to uh, have lost any ability to have any nuanced conversation right now about the situation 
in Ukraine to have a debate on nuance. And I think that is a, you know, a, a bad thing. I think that exactly what we should be having, we should be having more, actually, if you ask me, is more nuanced conversation, more debate about this issue uh, without the first thing being suggested, look at them, they're Putin apologists. What's your thoughts on this, Lee? Well, I entirely agree with you, and I agree with what Kevin said earlier on. We need more critical debate about this. War is very dangerous, and we've seen already 3.7 million Ukrainians displaced from their homes, a 1,000 civilians already dead. I study war and political conflict for my job, so I'm no stranger to the devastation that war wreaks. Our international policies should be based around avoiding war, if mm. at all possible. This is why I have condemned the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It's a brutal violation of Ukrainian sovereignty and self-determination. You don't have to apologise or support anything that Putin has done to try to talk more broadly about the causes of this war, why has it come about, and how can we stop the war to alleviate human suffering? I think you're absolutely spot on. I think understanding is absolutely key, and understanding is not the same as sympathising. Now let's talk P&O ferries, shall we? Uh, basically, the boss there has admitted breaking employment law when it sacks 800 workers without notice. Uh, the chief exec, Peter Hebblewaite, was urged by MPs today to quit after acknowledging that the ferry operator was required to consult with trade unions. The company, of course, will all be familiar with this story by now. It replaced its crews with cheaper agency workers last week. Now, this afternoon, the Transport Secretary, Grant Shapps, tweeted the following. However, you try and spin it, P&O Ferries has ripped up 800 workers' rights and hung them out to dry. I've instructed a full review of our maritime employment laws and will be strengthening protections for seafarers' minimum wages. I will share an update in the coming days. Well, let's have a quick listen to what the boss of P&O Ferries told MPs earlier today. There's absolutely no doubt that we were required to consult with the unions. We chose not to do that because we believe... You chose to break the law. Because we chose not to consult and we, will com and we are and will compensate everybody in full for that. I recognise that this is a really... When you get in your car and drive down the motorway and you see the 70 mile an hour sign, do you decide that that's not going to apply to me, I'm going to do 90 uh, because I think it's important that I do that? Is that how you go about your life? No. No, it isn't. You know, I, um, I think it's appalling, actually, the way that P&O uh, ferries have treated these 800 people. Um, and I know, actually, that many people uh, want the boss to be berated, to be humiliated, to be shown up. But personally, I watched a lot of this um, select committee today and it just made me roll my eyes. Kevin, I suspect you may disagree with me. What's your thoughts Michelle, on this, why did why did you roll your eyes? Because I think that what's going on uh, in Parliament always, people cannot help but try and take an opportunity to score points to kind of make themselves look good. Yeah. And I've got to say, if I was there, and, and this is, you know, people be furious with me, and this is why I feel I need to caveat um, what I'm about to say. I think it is appalling what P&O ferries did, the way that they treated their workers, no ifs, buts or maybes. But if I was that boss and they started like that with me, I would have said to them, excuse me, um, first and foremost, I won't be uh, spoken to in this way. So if you want to conduct a professional conversation with me, I'm open. But if you want to continue like this, I'll get my cut and I'll leave. Hey, do you know what? Respect to you. 
I, I, I hear where you're coming from, and I think that you know that these parliamentary select committees, the habit of grandstanding, and there's a lot of performativity goes on. So actually, I agree with you on that. So we're, we're singing from the same hymn sheet. But you know, I, I wonder how much of a debate is actually going to happen around this particular issue. Number one, the fella accepts that his company were effectively breaking the law. That's the first thing. Second thing. Do you see people who are in trade unions like me and workers of which there are actually still tens of millions of us? If ever there was a moment you need to stand up and fight and support your fellow workers, this is it. Um, and you know what? See all those people watching. I know some of them are a bit older and I remember Mrs Thatcher and I would have loved her. I hope they're sufficiently embarrassed. They're right. That whole idea of Tina, there is no alternative to the market. You do what you have to do. This is what P&O are doing. And so people need to ask themselves, are you really into free market capitalism or not? Because personally, I would be embarrassed if I was a free market capitalist. Now, as for the TUC and Frances O'Grady and her wearing a suit and meeting all the nice people, she needs to get her hands dirty. And if the TUC mean anything, now is a friggin' time to get up, organise the workers. Every docker in Britain and across the world shouldn't touch a P&O ship within a million miles. Don't touch it with a barge pole. And the bottom line is, there is a cost of living crisis coming down the line, which we all know. You were talking about that yesterday okay. in your show. See if the workers and fellow trade unions do not support and back these people 100%. We will rue the day, because I have no doubt that what's coming down the line is workers are going to have to stand up and fight when their paying conditions are attacked and when they're not getting pay rises. And the cost of living and inflation is soaring through the roof. So this is almost like a little easy challenge for the TUC and my fellow workers in trade unions. Not an inch on this one, Michelle. Not an inch, Ben Habib. Well, I agree with Kevin that this is just the beginning of the problem. And I think it's worth rewinding a little bit and just reminding ourselves that the reason we have a cost of livings crisis, the reason we have rampant inflation is because we had lockdown. We had lockdown, which subdued economic activity for two years, allowed resources to de be depleted, our gas reserves to be depleted, so that when the, eco when the economy kicked up again, we got this massive surge of inflation. And to be fair to P&O, and I'm going to defend them at one level, they did, again, what any economic organism would do. They judged that paying the penalties for not consulting their workers, paying those penalties, was the, was the lesser of, of the economic evil of having to go on paying wages that they couldn't sustain. P&O would have gone bust. And instead of 800 jobs going, 3,000 jobs would have gone. And so the dilemma that they faced was the PR backlash, which Kevin is so articulately, uh, uh, so well articulated, the PR backlash versus actually closing down as a business. And what's very interesting about what Grant Schaap said... Hang on a minute, Ben. Yeah. Did you say, you, you know, that you, they're making out that they're on the burns of the backside, P&O, but this is the same company who are flashing around, I think it's about 100 million or whatever it is, sponsoring golf tournaments and stuff well, like that. So, come on. Yeah, well... I mean, that is a drop in the ocean. I don't, know, I don't think they did 100 million on golf tournaments. But the, the, the cost of... Am I of, making that up? I'll check I, Well, 100 million is a massive I amount. I think it was 200 million that long ago that they paid out in dividends, actually. I mean, you can check... I'm going to fact, check fact my figure on the golf thing. I've, I know they've done something But what golf. is interesting... I might have exaggerated the whole. And, you know, I just want to go back to the duplicity of government here for a second. At the same time as condemning P&O and getting on their moral high horses in that select committee, Boris Johnson was saying that he would not 
prevent DP World, which is the owner of PO, from participating in the free course that he said. You're right. I did get my figures wrong. What it wasn't it? 100 million. What was it? 147 On million. On sponsoring golf tournaments. So I stand, I okay. stand corrected. Well, I mean, that there. is outrageous. That's not the behaviour of a company that's really struggling, is it? Come on now. Well, when, when were these? When were these. Uh... I'll find out. Yeah. <laughs> well, what, what do you want from well, me? Well, like well, because I mean, you know, the, the, it doesn't it doesn't ring true that they spent 147 million right. on golf tournaments in the last year or so. I'm gonna I'm gonna um, get all these facts. I mean, you're probably I, right, Michelle. It just I doesn't am. ring true to me. But you know, leaving the golf tournaments aside for a moment, I mean, what they've done is economically rational. They've assessed two situations and they've gone for lower costs, avoiding going bust. Uh, and, and protecting the business. So the economic rationality is screw your workers. No, no I'm no, not hold, saying no, that. Ben, I'm not saying no, that. Ben, no, but my I'm, point I'm, is, no, no, my I'm point is, no, this is not and a personal just, attack on yeah, you. Yeah. This is an analysis of capitalism. And you know what? Ultimately, when you get to this stage, capitalism doesn't work very well, does well, it? Well, no, but what we shouldn't have done was locked the country down for a couple of years. I don't even dispute and, that. Yeah. So let's leave COVID. So I accept the point about COVID, but the you, government you, but has to no, take responsibility your, your for the point about the economic rationality yeah. is fascinating because you're really honest. And what I'm saying is, what does economic rationality mean in reality? It means that you absolutely screw workers. You well, just what's toss them on the Kevin, heat. What's going to happen now? What's going to happen now with this inflation? Inflation is the first wave of the damage. Ben, this has got this, nothing to do with inflation. No, no, no. But. Well, it's, it's cost rising, P&O cost rising. This has got, and this has got to do with, with outsourcing fundamentally, which is, you are right, it is an economic rationality. Companies have been doing it for years. Where they can evade national regulations that entrench minimum wage and decent treatment by hiring agency staff or shifting their production overseas, they will do it. So according to the CEO, they were paying their workers £36,000 per year and they've replaced them with agency workers earning between £5.15 and £6 per hour, which is below the UK minimum wage of £8.91, yeah. which is not enough to live on. But Lee, before anyway, we get on that moral high horse... I'm not on a moral high horse. No, no, no. I'm just relating no, Before we, we collectively get on that moral high horse, remind ourselves that the reason inflation has been so low for the not, last... The not, reason inflation has been so low for the last 15 to 20 years is because we in the United Kingdom are addicted to cheap goods from China, all produced often by slave labour. You know, we've got to have this honest debate about where we are. If you want, if you want to consume goods which are entirely ethically made, made in the United Kingdom by British workers, get used to much higher costs. If we want to really challenge China and we want to make sure that they observe human rights and that they, and they behave fairly in their trade policies, we have to get used to much higher costs in the West. And we're beginning to see that. And I just want to say, make one more point, just play, uh, coming back to Kevin, because it's an important point. The next wave, the next result of this is going to be unions demanding higher wages. And we're going to see wage inflation. And then we're going to see interest rates rise. And we're going to have another recession. And it's going to be painful. We've seen this before. What we're having now, what we're experiencing now, we haven't experienced since 1991. This is a classic supply-side inflationary problem. You get second-round inflation through wage growth. Then you get a, a, a central bank response, and everyone suffers massively. I don't think that is going to happen. So the idea that there is going to be a wage-price spiral, like it was in the 1970s, is not correct because today trade unions are exceedingly weak. 
That mm -hmm. is a massive difference yep. to the 1970s. Yep. And what this episode points to is the weakness of labour protections under UK law, which is the fault of both political parties. Kevin is right, it started with Margaret Thatcher, but the Labour Party did nothing to repeal these anti-union laws. The Trade Union Congress can do nothing. It cannot call a general strike in defence of the sacked P&O workers. The funny thing about this particular case is the law is so feeble, it really provides hardly any protection to workers. All P&O had to do was to organise a sham consultation with workers lasting 90 days. That was all. And I, I've sat on the other side of, of tables with employers as a trade union ne negotiator, right? All they have to do is say, this is what we propose. The trade union can say, no, we don't agree. And after 90 days, it's tough. The employer can do whatever it wants. It can just make those people redundant. So in this case, that's all. That's the only protection well, in this from, case, from redundancy. In this case, the so, employees have done better than that because actually they having, they're going to receive penalties because they didn't go through that sham consultation. It's a, there will be penalties paid to them. Kevin, they have to give them redundancy payments regardless of whether they do the consultation. But there'll or be not. penalties for the not doing the consultation. That they didn't even follow the, the sham process, which is all they have to do under the law anyway. I agree with every single word of Lee's very intellectual analysis. Can I, can I dumb it down a little bit? You may. Ben, you and I, actually, we're really good friends now. We've, we've been on a few of these things, and we, we speak in the week group. Oh, right, we've got two besties. Yeah, we, we, oh, I didn't we, know we, that. We're actually, I would call us besties. All <laughs> oh, right, you two. I, we, 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 we respect each other, and even on the North of Ireland question, we differ, but we respect each other. Northern but, Ireland. But the, I would say the North of Ireland. <laughs> but the thing about it is, Ben, you, you speak as a boss, as, a, as a, you know, a capitalist. I speak as a worker, and I thought it was fascinating when you talked about, oh, and them big boss unions are going to come now and they're going to be demanding higher um, wage rises and inflation is going to shoot up. And I would just say, we just want a bigger piece of the cake. You, you know, the people who run the businesses in this country, I'm by not, and large, you know, this is Kevin, I, I'm not making they have a big point. piece of the cake in terms of the profits they make. And if workers have any decency and self-respect, and I hope they do increasingly, they will demand a bigger piece of the pie. And I think that's a really positive um, well, Do you accept thing? then, when we talk about pieces of pie and wages, do you accept that the higher wages go, the higher prices will go to compensate, and around and around we go? Um, I tell you what, I would half agree with you, but the reason why I half don't agree with you is because I still think the reason why the prices go up is because people like Ben want to <laughs> maintain their very high profit margins, mm -hmm. and if they're prepared to squeeze their profit margins, give the workers a better wage, they can still sell the goods at not half as high a price as Ben's uh, uh, alluding to. No, I was pro-Brexit. One of the reasons I was pro-Brexit was to, to, to rid this country of cheap labour, which is underlying, uh, undermining the employment market. I'm all for higher wages. I'm all for delinking trade with China. But people have to recognise that that does mean you will have higher costs in the UK. And, you know, you, you, can't, you can't have this nirvana. I'm not making a moral <laughs> point. I'm not making a moral point, Kevin. I'm making a practical economic point. before the break, we were talking about PNO. Uh, any second now, I'm going to start talking about slavery. Um, obviously, Prince William's been in Jamaica, but our, con our conversation about PNO rumbled on through the break. And just before I went to the break, we hit upon the in interesting point of Brexit. Many people are saying that this whole PNO situation is because of Brexit. Uh, others, of course, denying that. But Ben Habib, I can't resist the opportunity. You're a former Brexit Party MEP, so I want to put this Brexit point to you. Um, you know, it's undeniable, actually, that P&O ferries 
basically re-registered some of their fleet, the UK fleet, away from the UK into an entity that allowed them to get various benefits from the EU. Many people are saying that because of some of these changes and, of course, because of the reduction in trade because of Brexit, Brexit is responsible for PNO. Your thoughts? Well, it's, uh, the reduction in trade has got nothing to do with Brexit. The reduction in international trade was fundamentally as a result of lockdown. Um, but absolutely, the European community, the European Union, forgive me, <laughs> the European Union um, is at sixes and sevens with itself because it champions, uh, it ostensibly champions employment law, but at the same time, actually, it's a promoter of huge uh, demographic damage through the export of cheap labour from Central and Eastern Europe uh, to, to, you know, to, to Western Europe. And that isn't just bad for, for, for you know, workers' rights in the UK, France, Germany, etc. It's actually really bad, and I've seen this firsthand. It's really bad for the countries from which these people come because they, get a, they have a void of workforce. If you look at the population of Romania, it's fallen from 22 million, I think, to 18 million now. Ever, you know, since it joined the EU. That's a disaster for an economy. So th this whole freedom of movement, which they champion as another one of their, um, you know, flags of moral rectitude, actually is very damaging to the people uh, that they leave behind in the countries that they, they exit and also damaging for the countries that they go to. So, yes, I think the EU does have a hand um, you know, in undermining labour rights and protections. Yeah, I'm talking about the reflagging of their fleet into Cyprus, mm. um, which was them taking advantage of Brexit. My granddad watches your show. Oh, hello, Lee's granddad. <laughs> uh, and loves you very much. Oh, you thank know. you. Someone's got to. And, you know, he used to be in the Merchant Navy for many years. So I know, I know something about how this industry has operated. It's often the case that shipping owners have reflagged ships into foreign jurisdictions so they can evade the national laws that give um, workers rights. Mm -hmm. And this is something that happened under the EU all the time. The reason why P&O will have reflagged to Cyprus is that in, in the EU, and this has been upheld by the European Court of Justice, it is legal for shipping owners to bring in so-called posted workers from lower wage jurisdictions so that they can evade the national labour regulations in which they're operating. So the, the EU is often associated with workers' rights. The reality is that the most important workers' rights in this country were won by trade union struggles in the 1960s and 70s. The EU minimum standards were always lower than the UK minimum standards where they existed. And the erosion of workers' rights was happening for decades inside the EU because the EU is fundamentally a pro-market organisation that undermines workers' rights. Well, Peter's been in touch. Lots of you getting in contact, actually, about P&O. Uh, Peter says, basically, he's never seen such a cynical and disgusting performance. Uh, he was talking, of course, about the CEO there. Um, well, I assume he's talking about the CEO <laughs> there. Um, Mark says... You know, well, sorry, Mickey says, well, why should P&O play by the rules when Boris and his party gate pals don't bother following any rules? Interesting. John says the 800 people who have been laid off are a victim of COVID policies. We should all be pulling together. This is pure capitalism at its worst. Um, Susan says P&O should be forced to change their name to DMP. They're trying to employ slave labour, she says. 
Hmm, interesting. Lots of you also, by the way, getting in touch on Ukraine. John, and I like this email, actually, John. Uh, hence, I'm going to read it out. You say, I just want to say what a great job Boris is doing in this handling of the Ukraine situation. He's proving that he is the right man for the job and far better than any other European leader. Um, I read that out because so often, you know, all we ever hear is criticism of the things that the government does. No matter what topic, quite frankly, everyone's so quick to come out and criticise Boris Johnson. Um, and quite frankly, who would want his job right now? It's crises after crises, after emergency, after emergency. So credit where it is due. That is John's sentiment. So there you go. Let's move on, shall we? Uh, Prince William, of course, has been in Jamaica. He's denounced slavery's abhorrence during a speech there, saying it should never have happened. His comments followed days of protests, of course, during the couple's tour of the Caribbean with campaigners in Jamaica calling for reparations for slavery from the royal family. Uh, I'll start with you on this, Kevin. Uh, where do you stand on the, you know, apologies for the past, uh, reparations for slavery, etc.? Oh, you know, I was teaching this. Hey, I've just realised the time. Uh, so I have to go really quick. Can. Yeah. Um, okay, slavery is abhorrent. It was absolutely wrong. Um, absolutely. I don't, I don't think William is guilty of it. Uh, I think it happened four or five hundred years ago. And um, no, against reparations. Uh, I think a lot of the people on the left who are calling for reparations. The problem with their politics is they've got nothing, no type of politics to go forward with, nothing dynamic, so they end up going backwards looking to this type of issue, and I think it doesn't do us any, any justice at all. By the way, Jamaica is, uh, you know, the particular island that he, he made the speech on. I think they were wanting their independence completely to break away from the Commonwealth, etc. If that's the case, it would be good if their leaders give us a little bit more of a dynamic, forward-looking type of politics rather than going back to slavery. Uh, and, and reparations. There's a lot more to be said. I'm rushing at 90 miles an hour for you to Goodness beat the clock. me, if that's you being brief. Crikey, Ben <laughs> Habib. Well, I completely agree with everything Kevin said, and I'd go further and I'd say that actually there's not a single country in the world that hasn't had some history of involvement with slavery. And um, we shouldn't be sitting here in 2022 making uh, apologies for what happened 200 plus years ago. And we also should remember actually that it was the United Kingdom that was first to condemn slavery and to end the trade way before the United States of America did. And, you know, we very rarely get credit for that. And so I think the subject should not be discussed. The royal family should not apologise for it. There you go. No, no offence sitting for you, Ben Habib. Um, Lee? I think this is a very good example of where culture wars gets in the way of understanding real politics. Why has he made this apology? Why did Prince Charles apologise in Barbados uh, last year? He was there because the Barbadians were wanting to have a referendum on getting rid of the monarchy, and they did, so they've broken away from the monarchy. And lo and behold, Jamaica also wants to have a referendum, and the polls suggest 55% support for a republic. So this is a rather cynical PR campaign by the royal family to try to prevent yet another uh, post-colonial state breaking away from the monarchy. Mm. Uh, Paul's uh, just emailed in and said, Michelle, as a British seafarer of 30 years, I have to say this situation is unfortunate. Par for the course, what is shocking is that most of the development con uh, developed countries have legislation in place that stipulates any vessel operating in sovereign waters must be crewed by their own nationals. We now in Brexit Britain have an ideal opportunity to, secu to secure British jobs and our proud maritime history for the future by introducing the same legislation. Well, there you go. Um, that is all we have time for today. Tonight, Kevin, Ben, Lee, thank you very much for your time. And you guys at home, as always, thank you very much for your company.
Thanks for listening to Jubes and Co, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time.